Hello and welcome to another episode of the MIMS Learning Clinical Update podcast. My name is Dawn Liz Powell and I am one of the medical editors at MIMS Learning. Here with me today is Sangeeta Krishnan, another one of our medical editors and our deputy editor, Rhiannon Ashman. So this episode has a special focus on contraception. To start with, Rhiannon and I will be discussing a complex contraception scenario. Then Rhiannon will be speaking to Professor John Gilbow about how GPs can support the optimal use of the contraceptive pill in primary care. Professor John Gilbow is the Emeritus Professor of Family Planning and Reproductive Health at University College London. Finally, Sangeeta, Rhiannon and I will bring you three key points about emergency contraception. Thank you, Dawn. As we know, there are a number of widely available contraceptive methods and many factors influence an individual's choice of which to use. In some specific patient populations, the decision-making process for contraception prescribing can be particularly involved. So, in a series of modules on MIMS learning, Dr Katie Boog and Dr Imogen Murray discuss these tricky cases. For example, contraception for older patients, after childbirth and abortion, for transgender individuals, those with obesity and for patients taking other regular medications. In this podcast episode, I'm going to talk to Dawn about contraception for a young patient who has heavy painful periods. Dawn, the patient we're considering today is 16 years old and is a swimmer, so her heavy periods are problematic. The patient's mum uses the contraceptive injection and her periods have stopped, so our patient thinks the injection would be ideal. She's sexually active, her boyfriend is also 16 and they're using condoms every time they have sex. Our patient has acne but no other health issues, no relevant family history and no allergies. Okay, so is the patient right then? Would the injection be ideal for her? To answer this, let's first think about the UK medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use, UK EC, and the safety of the different methods of contraception for young people. Her young age is not an absolute contraindication to any method of contraception but the injection is UK MEC Category 2 for patients under the age of 18. Okay, but what does Category 2 mean and why is there the stipulation? UK MEC Category 2 means that the contraceptive method can generally be used, but more careful follow-up may be required. The injection is associated with a small loss in bone mineral density, which appears to be reversible on discontinuation. It also does not appear to be associated with an increased fracture risk. The injection can be used in young people under the age of 18 after consideration of other methods. Clinicians should also consider any other risk factors for decreased bone mineral density and patients should be reviewed every two years to reassess the risk versus benefit of using the injection. Okay, you mentioned that the patient had heavy periods and acne. How would that affect the choice of contraception? Apart from the copper IUD, all other methods of contraception may have a beneficial effect on her periods, but some more reliably so than others. The combined pill, the 52mg levonorgestrel IUD and the injection can all be used for the management of heavy or painful periods. Thanks for talking through this case with me today, Dawn. Listeners who are interested can read similar cases in the contraception series on MIMS Learning. The links are available in the podcast notes. And thanks for highlighting a really interesting case. So in the next section, Rhiannon will be interviewing Professor John Gilbow. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my podcast guest, Professor John Gilbo. Hello, Professor Gilbo. Thank you very much for getting my name right, uh, Rhiannon. Lots of people get it wrong with all kinds of versions over the years. 
but yes, it's nice to be here. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners are already familiar with Professor Gilbo's work in the area of contraception and environmental sustainability. Professor Gilbo is Emeritus Professor of Family Planning and Reproductive Health at University College London. He's got higher degrees in both surgery and gynaecology and over his career has performed around 4,000 vasectomies and a similar number of fertility regulating procedures for women. He's involved with research. He lectures and consults nationally and internationally on environmental sustainability, population and contraception. He has over 300 publications to his name, including nine books two of which have been bestsellers for 30 years to providers in the field. Professor Gilbo, today you and I are going to be talking about the better way to take the pill and we'll then cover off some practical tips for GPs on contraception. Before we do though, I'm interested in how your special interest in contraception and global environmental issues started. Yes, well, it was when I was a second year medical student at Cambridge at St John's and there was a college lecture, a voluntary lecture in the evening. And I think I actually arrived a bit late for it, but the lecturer just grabbed me because his subject was population growth. And at the time, the world only had about 3,000 million people. As you know, we now have 8,000 million. But he was predicting that by the end of the century, there'd be 6,000 million. And this was going to put tremendous strain on feeding the world and on the environment. And I thought, well, there's going to be need for people to do things with technology to feed people and so on. And there's got to be things done about consumption. But the thing a doctor can do is family planning. And I decided there and then I was going to be a specialist in that subject. Thank you, Professor Gilbo. So our topic for today, the listeners will be familiar with the standard advice given to women taking the combined contraceptive pill, which is, of course, to have a pill-free break every four weeks. But your recommendation would be different. Can you talk us through it? Yes, I will. Basically, the combined pill was devised in the 1950s. That's a pretty long time ago. The world's first ovarian suppressant, a real credit to the pioneers, Pinkers and Rock, particularly, and also Jurassic, Carl Jurassic. But Rock, the gynecologist in the team, supplied it to women with what seemed to him the logical instruction to produce periods because of the myth, which still exists in many quarters, that periods are good for health, but also because women would expect it. And also, at that time, it's difficult to know whether one was pregnant or not, and it was reassuring to women to have a bleed. So for those reasons, which were very sensible at the time, they introduced it in that way, with 21 pills followed by a seven-day break. After a while, that's what they'd settled on. But if you think about it, what that required was to say to women, here's this wonderful contraceptive that stops you ovulating, but please don't take it at all for a whole week, 13 times a year. And as a consequence, what that does is regularly unsuppress the suppressed ovary. So that unhelpful decision of Rock and Pincus, based on the calendar and not on data, although the data came along later, permits unsurprisingly degrees of return of ovarian activity every time during the periphery interval, some women much more than others. And that means there must be too little margin for pill emissions. If you're getting ovarian activity returning, and we now know it does so through scans and through looking at uh, blood estrogens, then you're going to mean that if somebody lengthens that pill free, even just by one day, they're going to be at risk of pregnancy. So if you made that gap down to four days, which is what we now recommend as a maximum, then you have more margin for error. So in some women, there's more likely to be ovarian activity and a higher risk of contraception failure if they miss the first few pills than in others. But presumably, there's no way of knowing. 
which women would be more. Well, precisely. They, they don't know. Nobody knows unless you're monitoring their ovarian function and looking at their follicles and, and blood estrogens. You don't know. But the people who are at risk are also not aware, usually, how crucial it is to never be a late restarter of the next packet. They think that uh, the crucial thing is not to miss pills in the middle of the packet. And that's rubbish. Some doctors still think that. Ain't the case. The problem is when you're late in starting the next packet, and then you will have an, a longer time for the ovary to wake up in. And of course, some women get pregnant on the pill, having missed no pills at all. So the problem is even there that the pill, when perfectly taken, will fail needlessly because the pill-free interval is needlessly long. It should be no more than four or five days if you're going to take in uh, pill intervals at all. So the suggestion would be then that there should be no pill-free intervals and there should in fact be just continuous pill taking. Yes, although you may then say, well, let's take in more drug. You know, at the end of the year, you take more drug. But the fascinating thing is you can actually do that continuously with a very weak pill, right down to probably 10 micrograms of estrogen. Then at the end of the year, you are not taking more drug. In a sense, you could say the pills that we have are still stronger than they need to be, only because they've got to be strong enough for the ovary to not wake up when you stop taking it for seven days. So if you don't have that long gap, then you can use a much, much less strong pill. And we all know pharmaceutically that it's always better to use the minimum dose of any drug for the desired uh, effect. We'd be looking at unlicensed use here if you're reducing the pill-free interval. Is that right? Yeah, well, there is actually, fortunately, a way of uh, which can happen now and is happening now. And lots of people are aware of this story, which is within the license. Because the license, I think every pill that's on the market in the UK, includes the option to run on your packets. When you're on holiday or you're coming up for your wedding and honeymoon and things like this, you can simply run straight on, missing pill-free intervals out by running on packets. And that is clearly on the data sheets and on the PILs, the patient information leaflets, that you can do that. So as of now, any listener to this can talk to a woman and give her the choice of simply doing this on the basis of taking three packets a row. I only say three packets a row because that's how they come marketed that way. You could take more, you could take four or more, but say three packets in a row and then take a four-day break and then restart. And you would be within the license because you'd be running on only two packets and that is fully accepted as within the license. So it's bizarre that the manufacturers do not simply change their PILs and their data sheets, which they'd be pushing at open door if they asked the licensing authorities in their country to be allowed to do this. They would not have to repackage. They'd simply be a bit more explicit in their instructions that you can take three packets in a row followed by the pill-free interval. And they haven't yet done it, although this story has been around since the turn of the century when uh, an RCT was done, which the Miller RCT published in 2003, where they compared taking the pill continuously with taking it with a 21-7 ordinary routine. And they found, okay, you've got a bit of spotting and breakthrough bleeding, but that settled with time. And if it didn't, the answer was to take a four-day break to clear the decks and then you'd be all right. And otherwise, it worked well. And we now know a huge array of advantages come along. Does it have any effect on other symptoms, period pain, premenstrual syndrome, that sort of thing? Absolutely, it does. And the list is amazingly long. The principal advantages then, if I can list them, are first of all, efficacy. Greater in the ordinary way for everybody, but particularly for anybody who misses the pills in a way that lengthens the pill-free interval. 
The rules are simpler because if you miss a pill, you simply go back to pill taking. I mean, that's amazing because the current rules are quite complex, aren't they? About uh, taking extra precautions for a week and all that jazz and uh, running on packets at, uh, at the end of the time and all that kind of thing. The rules are so simple. The third advantage is you almost never need emergency contraception for missed pills unless you miss a handful. Because as you're only missing a maximum of four, and that would only be if you need that to deal with a bleeding problem or because you um, are on this uh, 63-4 regimen. So, so long as you never miss seven or more pills, you don't have to use condoms at all. So there's another advantage, three advantages to date. Fourth advantage I also, also mentioned was the lower dose, and it's always good to give the lowest possible dose. So one tries to use for this regimen the lowest available dose in the country, which would be a 20 microgram pill, but I, I believe you could have the lowest 10. Uh, and then the added benefits, the menstrual benefits, which uh, is amazing. That Why would you have to see periods if there's absolutely no health benefits to either ordinary periods or to the periods that come on on the pill? There are no health benefits. So you get less bleeding days per year. You may get some spotting, but that's deal-withable. And you certainly, and this is just significant in the RCTs, there have been several RCTs now, which have shown that menstrual pain is less when taking the pill this way. You also get less headaches because uh, people do get headaches in the pill-free interval and those who are prone to those don't get the headaches now because they don't have pill-free intervals or get far fewer. And thirdly, in this benefits area, you get good evidence that you get less PMS because PMS is fascinating. It's to do with the menstrual cycle. But if you abolish the menstrual cycle, then you get much less PMS if you're prone to it. The trouble with the pill, taken the ordinary way, is that then you reproduce the variability of the hormone levels, and so the person recreates a form of PMS often with the pill. But now, if you take the pill continuously, you get less PMS. So there's another advantage. So I don't know how many advantages that is, about six or seven. Almost any one of those would be good enough to say, why not take the pill either 63-4 or totally continuously? And yet we're still, in 2023, finding that all over the world, the commonest way to take the pill is still the way that Pinkers and Rock first devised. I mean, you said you've been proponent of this method for 20 years. Is it likely that there's going to be any change by the manufacturers, national guidelines, that sort of thing? Well, I can see it only happening if there's enough pressure from consumers, uh, which includes GPs who, who supply pills to consumers, from the people who use pills, side or regulators but the trouble is regulators tend to just be reactive to what the drug firms come along with or otherwise we've got to lobby the drug firms to see that this would be in their own interests as well as in the interests of all women who take the pill to move in this direction and as i say the tricycling has been around actually in the literature since the end of the sun been around for ages as an option so there's a huge amount of experience of, of, the, of that way of taking the pill. And I've told you, it's already there as a, in the license. So you mentioned breakthrough bleeding being a potential issue. What's your checklist that you would go through with, with a woman presenting with breakthrough bleeding? That's a, that's a very good thing to talk about straight away because it's one of the objections that people have to this. We, doctors and patients will be worried about the license and we've dealt with that because you can the way of taking that doesn't even interfere with the license but the drug firms could change the license to be to allow completely continuous use but in that study by miller and the other studies that have been done since there is that problem that if people take the pill continuously some women get after a while or sometimes right from the off a problem with breakthrough bleeding 
Fortunately, if they take a four-day break, and they can only do that if not had a previous four-day break just just two days ago, because you mustn't must, must never let the ovary have more than seven days without being suppressed. But otherwise, they simply take a four-day break, and that in itself kind of does a sort of pharmacological DNC. It, it sheds the bleeding endometrium, and after that, if they take the pill continuously, again, it may take a few days to settle, but it usually does settle. So that's how to handle it when breakthrough bleeding occurs in any form of continuous pill taking. But more generally, and this is one of my contributions, I think, in the field, is that there's a very useful, in fact, it started with a, with my colleague in South Africa, Esther Sapau, who's a sort of well-known family planning doctor in South Africa in the end of the last century. She started this idea, but I've expanded on it. Basically, everything starts with D. Here's your woman in front of you on any contraceptive, but particularly pills that it applies to. You've got to think first, could it be D for disease? Because although she's on the pill, it might be chlamydia, it might be a cervical cancer, it might be a cervical polyp, it could be some disease that affects her absorption. So basically, D for disease must go through your head first before you attribute this breakthrough bleeding to the pill. Then you've got to think of a disorder of pregnancy. In other words, she may have recently had a termination of pregnancy and had retained products, and that's the bleeding really, even though she's on the pill. Or in the ordinary way, when she first started the pill, she was already in the early stages of pregnancy, or even it could be an ectopic. So again, think of a disorder of pregnancy. Third D, default. She might be just missing the pill. We know that that causes a tendency to, to a breakthrough bleeding. And so you've got to talk about that and consider that, that issue. Diarrhea and vomiting, again, a reason why she might be bleeding, but very much D for drugs. Could she be prescribed by somebody an enzyme-inducing drug, lowering the blood levels just enough to cause breakthrough bleeding? And interestingly, smoking appears to be an enzyme-inducer, and smokers have been shown to get more breakthrough bleeding uh, with the pill than non-smokers. And then finally, D for duration. I've already said when the pill is taken continuously, any breakthrough bleeding they get, the first thing to try is just to keep going, because usually when they persevere, the breakthrough bleeding will stop. And it's only after you've gone through all those Ds, the disease, disorder pregnancy, default, diarrhea and vomiting, drugs and duration issues, then you think about dose change. And you sometimes need a stronger pill, but commonly now that we, we're doing this continuous pill taking, you don't need a stronger pill. What you do is take one of these four-day breaks as an action, but only after you check that it isn't something like chlamydia that's really causing the bleeding. I think that's a very useful checklist, and it's in all my writings and, and in my lectures, and many of you may have heard of it before. So if you're wanting to quick start a method of contraception, well, firstly, in what situations would that be something you'd want to do? And when would it be better to use a sort of bridging method by starting first with a pill and then transferring onto a different form of contraception? That's a very important issue because, again, I talked about myths. There's the myth that you need periods, uh, but there's also the myth that has developed, a medical myth, that you should always start your new method of contraception on the first day of your period. It is not unlicensed to start at other times, and you don't need to worry about birth defects with a number of contraceptives, particularly the mini pill, but also the usual combined pills that we use. So you can start the pill later than the first day, and it's better to do so, because WHO did an analysis of this, again, at the beginning of this century, and in their 
the 2010 guidance, they said, if a clinician is reasonably sure that a woman is not already on the way to conceiving, a medical family planning method, most often a pill, can be started immediately at the time when seen, quick started, always along with usual advice to the woman about extra precautions. And that's usually for seven days for combined hormonal contraceptives when started on day five or later. And they were prepared to say this because starting the new method only when the next period comes along risks avoidable conception. But after she was seen by the medical provider, doctor or nurse or whoever, and that will cause more morbidity from unplanned pregnancy than quick starting plus seven days of condoms will do. WHO said the concern about birth defects can be considered nil or negligible for standard combined pills. Now, there's a study, for example, of 880,000 women from Denmark, a database study, which showed absolutely no increased risk of birth defects when pills were started in early pregnancy. So they are remarkably safe products, and even more so, of course, if you're starting the progesterone-only pill. So if we just put those together, combined pills and progesterone-only pills, it's a, a no-brainer to quick start and just say, here are your pills, use condoms for seven days. doesn't matter whether your last period is a few days back longer ago or very long time ago, and people who sometimes arrive in amenorrhea. Only with those, of course, you do a pregnancy test first. But of course, you arrange extra precautions for seven days and you do some kind of follow-up in three weeks' time and make sure that they touch base with you in case they did get pregnant. And then if in doubt that you would stop the pill and confirm the situation, decide what, what's going to happen about the pregnancy. And you want to stop them if they're going to term before organogenesis. But the main thing is prescribers can often be, as WHO put it, sure or very reasonably sure that they're not going to get pregnant and when they're such safe products, just start straight away. Okay, so are there any exceptions? Yes. Uh, I, I said just now, always quick start and, and don't feel that they've got to wait to the next period. And that is nearly always true, but there are terms that apply. First of all, and this is quite a rare situation, they may want to go on one of the pills that is good for acne, like Dianet, although that's less advantageous in many ways than Yasmin or Eloine, which has got a nice low 20 microgram dose. These are pills, and there are others too, Clara and Zoli, which contain anti-androgenic progestogens. And there's animal work that shows that if somebody did get pregnant, obviously when you quick start, there is a possibility that the person will conceive, even though it's unlikely and not too harmful. But here it might be because there's animal work that shows if you give antiandrogens, the, the, the fetus may be, if it's going to be a male fetus, can be feminized if you expose it to progestogens, which have this additional effect. So there's an example where you would not quick start. But if they want the pill, you could easily quick start them with any other pill that I mentioned that aren't the ones with an antiandrogenic progestogen, and then switch them say three or four weeks later when you can do a pregnancy test and it means something and then you can go back to the, you can start the eloine which is the ideal pill for acne 20 microgram and that would be uh, just fine so that's what we call bridging and the other situations in which where you bridge with something that is safe to quick start and then move on the other examples might be the patient comes to you at the very end of the surgery and you can't do what she initially wants she wants to go uh, to have a, a Mirena, or if she wants to have uh, an implant, 
and uh, you can't do it then and there. Well, again, just there she is. I can't be sure she's abstained since her LMP, not to worry. You still can quick start her with any pill combined or progestin only. And then after three weeks of a negative pregnancy test, you could by then arrange to Serta Morena or Serta Depa Vivera, by the way, because that again is not a good idea, quick started, because you can't take it out. And if she got pregnant and wanted to go to term, nobody would be that happy to have given a, a dose of Depa Vivera in early pregnancy when you could avoid it. So what you do is you quick start with a pill, the right kind of pill, not an anti-androgenic type. And then three weeks later, pregnancy test negative, uh, she could have her depot. So those methods, depot, Mirena, and the uh, Nexplon are probably best not quick started, but bridge first with one of these pills. So thinking now about emergency contraception, there was a paper published in The Lancet in August 2023. Could you tell us a little bit about what the study found? It's a good study, a randomized controlled trial, an RCT, 860 women. It was done in China, Hong Kong, I think, and they randomly allocated the women to either the normal Levonel, which is levonorgestrel, or to the same plus piroxicam, feldine, as I think it's called here. And the failure rate of the ordinary Levonel was, was a bit higher than expected. It was 63% success, whereas the combination, when you put piroxipan in, in was 95% uh, of pregnancy prevented. Now, we know, of course, in, in all these studies, quite a lot of women wouldn't have got pregnant anyway, but the number who would have got pregnant would be expected to be the same in an RCT in the two groups. And there was this statistically significant uh, better failure rate with the addition of the piroxicam. Do you think that's going to have any implications for practice? It sounds interesting. Yes, I think it might. But one would have some caveats. It is very early days. And we always say in science that any finding should be repeated to be sure it's for real, even if it's a good study like this one. And in different populations, because these are all Chinese people. Secondly, um, piroxicam itself in this country has been given restrictive usage because of its side effects. It is an NSAID, it is an antiprostaglandin. Indeed, that's probably why it increases the efficacy because uh, prostaglandins are important in early pregnancy. But the reason it's only prescribed by specialists now in this country, and it's certainly not over the counter, is because of concern in longer term use than this, the side effects like having a higher rate of gastrointestinal bleeding and so on. So. You could argue, of course, that piroxicam taken just as a one-off like this would be most unlikely to cause such trouble, and that's true. But again, if it really proves to be effective, then why not use an available uh, over-the-counter product? And 11L is over-the-counter product itself, and then women could not only take 11L, but add in, say, diclofenic or naproxen, uh, standard NSAIDs, which they can also just get over-the-counter and that is quite an interesting idea. But at the moment, you'd have to say, if a patient asks you about this, that we don't know that they would work. It might be a unique effect of piroxicam until the studies are repeated in different populations and using different antiprostaglandin drugs. Thank you. Really fascinating. Moving on then to my next question. What's new about IUDs? Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, you would normally bridge if somebody wanted to leave an IUS, which is Mirena or or one of the newer 
forms of Lima Gestla US as there are around now. Uh, and uh, they come to you wanting it in the middle of the month. And although in general, we are much more comfortable with quick starting than waiting for the next period, you would normally bridge. Because again, of the concern about an unplanned pregnancy. On the other hand, Turok et al. did two studies, one about 2016, uh, in which they said, well, why not give them Levonel as your emergency contraception, because they do need it in the middle of the cycle, and then fit the Mirena straight away. And they found that that was highly effective just to do that. But they then went one step further. And in 2021, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the women in that study, the New England Journal of Medicine, simply had a Mirena fitted straight off as their emergency contraception and also as their long-term contraception, something we've always been saying we shouldn't do. We've always said, if you're going to use an emergency contraception, you should use copper. But in their RCT compared with copper, they found that both worked. The copper was more effective. I think they had a zero failure rate, which is often the case with, with copper. It's such an effective emergency contraceptive. But they had a very low failure rate. I can't remember the number just off the top of my head, but it was only one or two failures in the use of Mirena straight off, not only as your emergency contraceptive, but also as your long-term one. And the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health has evaluated that study as I say, it was 2021, so it's been around a little while, and has stated that clinicians may feel that this is acceptable practice, even though the study has not yet been repeated. But with very careful follow-up, because if they did get pregnant with a Mirena in situ and decided to go to term, and not everyone would, then you have to worry, because the very high local concentration of levonorgestrel in an IUS in the uterus could harm a growing, developing fetus, there's no proof that it would be safe. No proof it would be dangerous, but no proof it would be safe to have that very high local concentration. So we would try to avoid that. And that's part of the, the discussion with the woman before you did this policy of following Turokatel and fitting your Mirena. It must be that one, by the way, the 50 milligram loaded dose of Levogestra IUS, the higher one, as your emergency contraceptive. But of course, there are other alternatives anyway, and the whole thing needs discussion. But it's an interesting concept and something that goes against what we previously taught. Thank you very much. Are there any other points that I've missed, anything on the horizon that you think might be of interest to our listeners? Yes, there are. In the field of intrauterine contraception itself, another myth, another medical myth which has developed is that the CUT-380A, which is the gold standard and still is a gold standard as regards copper intrauterine devices, which the lowest failure rate, the overall best performance. There are plenty of other IUDs out there which don't contain hormones but are copper. But it's a myth that that is best for Paris women. And the other one that's available, which is has the same amount of copper on it, called the TT Slimline Mini. That's the proprietary name for them by the manufacturer. But it's a, a CUT-380A with the same amount of copper on it. And the copper is contraceptive after all, but on a smaller frame a smaller plastic frame with the same surface area of copper upon it. Now, the myth is that that device should only be used in nullipary. But Hanat Actinamide of Newcastle did a simple study reviewing 130 case records in her clinic, and they found that several women had who were Paris had had this one fitted rather than the larger frame one. And when they analyzed the, the, the outcomes, they found over the following year that there are fewer removals for bleeding, 
fewer removals for pain, and also fewer expulsions, even in the Paris women. So that study, again, is repeating. It's just a a review of case records. But if that were confirmed, or even now, you could have a low threshold for fitting the mini version to a woman who's requesting an IUD. And by the by, there are a lot of women out there who don't like hormones. Well then, and they may well be nulliparous, you could fit them the, the TT mini for that reason. But if they were Paris, there's an argument also for fitting the smaller device if it is really proven to be true, and it's suggestive already, that you would get less bleeding, less pain, and even less expulsions when you use this smaller device. And after all, you are giving the same contraception. Uh, If you look the device up, you'll see that it is licensed only for five years. The other one is licensed for 10 plus years. And the contraception is still there in the mini. There's the copper that is contraceptive. So Please don't be concerned to do a bit of unlicensed use here and leave the mini copper IUD in for longer than the licensed five years because you are doing an unlicensed use of a licensed product where the licensed use is very, very solidly supported by the literature, by the data. And the GMC says when that's the case and if you consult with the client so she understands that it's not officially licensed, you can always do that if you follow the GMC guidelines for that particular situation. Well, thank you for that, Professor Gilbone. And thank you so much for your time. For our listeners, I hope you've really enjoyed this interview as much as I have. And if you're interested in brushing up your knowledge of contraception further, we've got a number of learning modules on MIMS Learning website, emergency contraception, complex contraception scenarios, and there will be links to those modules in the podcast information. Professor Gilbo would also like to point you towards his textbook, Contraception Today, uh, the ninth edition, published 2020, which is still up to date. And that's really, if you wanted to dive into the first part of our interview in a lot more depth, it's the first textbook published in English, recommending this way of taking the pill. So do you take a look at that as well. Thank you again. Thank you too, Rhiannon. And now on to our regular three key points feature. Today we'll be discussing the MIMS learning module Choices in Emergency Contraception by Dr. Jill Jenkins. So, Sangeeta, what is our first point? Our first point is about the various options available for emergency contraception. There are three relatively effective options available, including 1.5 milligrams levonorgestrel or LNG, 30 milligrams of ulipristal acetate or UPA and intrauterine devices, which are IUDs. Of the three options, IUDs are the most effective, but not always accessible. UPA prevents more unplanned pregnancies than LNG when given within three days of unprotected sexual intercourse, making it the oral treatment of choice for most women. Our second point is on timing. An IUD is effective up to five days after unprotected sex or after ovulation, and it can remain in situ, offering continuing contraception for up to 10 years. LNG is only licensed for use up to three days after unprotected sex, but it does have a continuing, although diminishing, effect, even after this, until four days. Historically, this was a better-than-nothing reason to use LNG when the patient presented after three days and did not want an IUD. However, UPA is now licensed for emergency contraception up to five days following unprotected sex. 
And finally, our third point is about choice. While timing is a major factor in the decision making about which emergency contraception to use, the individual needs and wants of the patient is also very important. There should be a shared discussion about all the options, including efficacy, previous contraception use, contraindications and personal experience. Therefore, choice of contraception should be a shared decision on what is right for this patient on this occasion. So, to sum up, overall an IUD is the most effective option, but it is not always accessible. UPA is more effective than LNG. The time between unprotected sex and presentation is a key factor in which contraception option to use. However, ultimately, choice of treatment should be based on the individual wants and needs of the patients. Thanks so much for joining Rhiannon, Sangeeta and me today for this special episode of the Clinical Update podcast. All of the modules discussed today are available on the Women's Health page of the MIMS Learning website. Please see the useful links section of the podcast notes for details.